Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I hope that you're all doing well. We have another great episode in store for you this week. So, let's not delay Let's get into it as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I'm an oil field worker in Barron County, Ohio. We're under attack. Written by Random Appalachian 468. They'll never tell you about this war. It'll never appear on the news or in the history books. No countries will petition our cause in the UN. We'll never get any aid supplies or vast shipments of weaponry from the government. I doubt the internet will even notice my little post, but I figure it's worth a shot. At least someone out there might find it and try to do something. Even if that something is coming down to pick up all the bones once it's over. I suppose by then you won't be able to recognize any of us. That's okay. Just dump us in a pit together and make sure somebody other than the government gets to inherit our stuff. I'm not trying to be tough or melodramatic. Just honest. My name is Ethan Sanderson. Right now, I'm sitting around the fire with the others, shoveling down a bowl of unsweetened oatmeal and typing this while I have time. To think my world was saying only a few hours ago... Everything normal obliterated in just over 60 awful minutes. There's no way I'll ever get back to my old job. Not with the roadblocks during the day and the attacks at night. Nope, I'm here to stay and so I figure I may as well share my story while this bout of decent cell service lasts. It all started when I was driving home from another round of night shift at the Brighton Smith Petroleum Refinery. Tired, covered in grease, and ready for a hot meal before bed. The radio crackled, auto-skimming through various channels, looking for anything other than twangy country music, self-pitying pop songs, or yet another news report yammering on about how close we were to getting to a nuclear war with the Russians. My truck's engine rumbled with a comforting, quiet regularity, and I let myself smile and pride at that. One thing I can do, and that's get an engine running smooth as silk. As an only child, with my father dying from lung cancer when I was 15 and my mother hooked on drugs since I was 12, I had been on my own for most of my life. Engines had been the one thing that I excelled at, school being my nemesis. And after I had fixed up an old F-150 bound for the scrapyard, I took the first oil rig job that I could find and I left town. I had done well for myself, stayed away from the dealers that had wrecked my mom's life, and accumulated enough money to buy a camper, several firearms, and a little solar power setup that allowed me to travel all over the country in relative comfort. Despite never having gone to college, 
I considered myself successful and if I ever found a woman who didn't mind the grease on my overalls and wasn't a total lunatic, maybe I would settle down and have kids of my own. Whatever the case, I swore to myself that I would be a better parent than either of mine had been. No cigarettes, no drugs, and no throwing chairs when I was angry. My thoughts were shattered at the sight of several white and orange plastic barricades stretched across the cracked asphalt, completely blocking my pathway. Behind them, two massive slate-gray trucks were parked nose-to-nose -nose across the roadway, just in case someone did get the bright idea of pushing past the flimsy obstructions. Five men dressed in similar gray uniforms and carrying shiny black rifles stood around the roadblock with the two more perched in the turrets of the armored trucks, manning belt-fed machine guns. I hadn't seen any signs warning me of construction, and never a road crew with armored vehicles, which made something sour twist in the pit of my stomach. As an inner-city kid from Pittsburgh, I learned to know when I was in a bad area, and this felt all kinds of bad. Look at Barron County trying to be Chicago. I grunted to myself and slowed to a stop in front of the barricades, waiting for the nearest soldier to walk up to my driver's side window. He approached, rifle at low ready, and I noted the automatic switch on its receiver. Nope, these guys weren't regular civilians out for a LARP. You need serious cash to have that kind of firepower which meant that I had to be dealing with some branch of our murky federal government. Just stay calm, you've got nothing to hide, and you've done nothing wrong. Play it cool. Hey man, I put on a friendly smile, scratching at my beard and pointing at the roadblock. Is there some kind of accident up ahead? Train derailment. From behind his dark face mask, the soldier casually threw out what must have been a predetermined lie, because I knew there was no rail line near this stretch of road. A real bad one, I'm afraid. We've been tasked with keeping civilians out of the area until it's all clear. Which way you headed? He seemed friendly enough, confident and relaxed, though I noted the beginnings of a tattoo that poked from under his uniform sleeve. Rangers lead the way. Something prickled in the back of my mind, a low warning that had saved me from many a mugging in my younger days. These guys weren't local. They didn't have any identifying patches or marks on their vehicles, and with how nice their gear looked, they weren't here as part of some hazmat team. Besides, if they were so bent on keeping people out, then why was one of the machine gunners facing the road behind them? as if waiting for someone to try and escape the ring of steel. Collingswood. I rested my elbow on the truck window and jerked a thumb back towards the way that I had come. I work at the oil refinery up the road. You guys military. The soldier chuckled and shrugged. Once upon a time, my dude. We're with the cleanup teams providing security. Like I said, there's some bad stuff down this road. They'll want people tracking through it and getting sick. Interesting timing. I haven't even heard about any accident, and yet there's already a court in. Never saw the government move so fast. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. I played along. 
and eyed the rest of them for any symbols that might tell me just who I was dealing with. Well, I'll be honest, this is normally the road that I take home and it's going to take me out of my way to go around. You sure I couldn't just? From behind his mask, the man gave out a sympathetic sigh. Sorry man, I've got my orders. No one passes unless they're official personnel. But hey, it should be all clear in like a few days tops. Putting my truck into reverse, I stuck out my hand doing my best to put them all at ease and keep the rifles pointed away from my head. Well, hey, thanks for letting me know. I'll tell the other guys at the rig and we'll try to keep out of your hair. I appreciate it. Despite the mask over his face, I could see the ends of his grin as these soldiers shook my hand and the others relaxed, their guns staying pointed toward the ground. Like I said, we'll be gone in a few days at the most. So if anyone starts getting riled up, just let them know that we've got this. Uh-huh, sure you do. I eased backwards into a U-turn and drove until I was well out of sight of the roadblock. As soon as they left my rearview mirror, I killed the lights and drifted into the grassy berm, coming to a stop with a minimal brake squeal. My trailer sat just on the outskirts of Collinswood, in a small, unkempt campground that was free to the public. It should have been a short commute, but the local police had been cutting off a lot of routes lately, for seemingly no reason at all. However, these upgrades at the roadblock weren't the usual sheriff's deputies. I knew a few guys in the refinery who were ex-military, and the soldier at the checkpoint had these same polite, but deadly mannerisms that told me I was dealing with professionals. Whatever was going on out there, they certainly weren't cleaning up a train derailment, especially since there were no train tracks near this road. I wonder what they need to hide so badly that they hire mercs. Pulling on my phone, I checked my maps app and scanned the spiderweb of small gravel roads around Collinswood for an alternate route. Some of the roads looked so small that I wondered if they would be out of commission as was the case with many of the neglected coal mining roads in this forgotten part of the Appalachian foothills. Of course, my pickup was four-wheel drive, and if the authorities thought that the road was impassable, then maybe they wouldn't have guarded. But with dawn only an hour away at best, I would have to be quick or risk being spotted in the daylight. There... My eyes caught a road called Bethesda Ridge that ran around a large chunk of land on the map labeled New Wilderness Wildlife Reserve. I had heard a few of the locals in Collinswood talk about that place, how pretty it was in the daylight, full of exotic animals and blooming flowers. I'm not much of a flower guy, but always figured maybe someday I would take a tour to see what all the fuss was about. There had been something in the news a few days ago about some guy named Richter being involved in a scandal connected to the park, but I never paid attention to it. At any rate, this road looked like it should be well maintained, and it would only take me five minutes longer than my usual route. With any luck, I would be back in my camper squeaky clean and eating hot ravioli in no time. I followed the directions my phone reliably spat out, winding up and down steep inclines through narrow overgrown mining roads and past farmhouse after dilapidated farmhouse. It depressed me how this area was so run down. 
the opioid epidemic really throwing the community for a hard loop. Part of me knew just by looking at the faded paint and sagging roof lines that these buildings had been beautiful ones. But poverty and indifferent government and the unending flow of narcotics poisoned that beauty, turning it into something like a theme from some 90s analog horror film. Randy, tell me you're seeing this. Swearing under my breath in surprise, I almost jumped out of my skin and stared at my shortwave walkie-talkie. We used them on the various work sites to communicate between crews, but I didn't recognize this voice. It was a young man, and he sounded scared. Yeah, I see him. An older man's voice came through low and rough, like he was whispering into his mic. Hold fire till they get closer. My curiosity spiked and I slowed, still driving down the bumpy old coal road in the dark. Most people don't know, but even rudimentary shortwave radios sometimes experience a phenomenon called a skip, where the right atmospheric conditions relay radio traffic from somewhere else. Sometimes traffic from different frequencies, channels, or even long distances. I had heard messages from as far away as California before, so it didn't surprise me that I could still get radio signals like this. Still, they were so clear, so loud that whoever was talking had to be close by, within 20 miles at least. My God. A woman's voice came through, shocked and tense, as if she were watching a building full of children collapse. There's so many, Randy. What are we... Stay calm. The older man barked back, and I got the feeling that he had some background in police or military, with the way that he seemed to take command of the situation. Just stay put and conserve your ammo. We'll be fine. Head cocked in confusion, I almost didn't look up in time and slammed my boot down on the brake pedal. Mud slushed under the knobby tread of my truck tires and brown fur blurred past my headlights. Stunned, I watched it in wide-eyed fascination as no less than 50 white-tailed deer bounded across the decrepit road at full speed, not even paying attention to my rumbling truck. Birds darted overhead, and not just owls and crows, but all manner of daytime birds as well. Pigeons, sparrows, songbirds, and even bats. Tens of thousands of bugs seethed over the dirt in dark sheets of wriggling legs, parting to allow the stampede of possums, raccoons, red foxes, and even a pack of coyotes to flee past them like a tidal wave was hot on their tails. Neither stopped to attack each other, Prey and predator running together all with their ears laid back, limbs moving at breakneck speed without a glance backward. What the? I had never seen animals act like this, not once in all my travels across the US. Something seemed to have spooked them, something bad enough that even the insects weren't hanging around to weather the storm. Milliseconds after the old man's voice echoed through the radio, a bright flash lit up the horizon to my left and a huge fiery orange ball rose from behind the hills bordering the road. My truck rocked, the shockwave rippled through the ground even from this far away and I ducked out of reflex. What the heck is going on here? My heart roared in my ear and I pushed the accelerator to the floor weaving through the horde of wildlife to fly down the dark road like a bat out of air. Take the next left. 
The map app on my phone chirped in its neutral, pleasant voice, and I drifted around the turn without even slowing down. Spare sockets for my tool set, rolling over the floorboard around my feet. Gravel pained against the undersides of my truck cab, and the landscape opened up around me, more grassland than trees. Flickers of orange light filled the sky, and the radio vomited a cacophony of human voices, all raging to be heard above the hiss of static and faint echoes of what sounded like gunfire. On your left. Phyllis, watch out. Randy, we need help on the right side. My gun's jammed. I swallowed and dodged to potholes as sweat trickled down my scruffy face. Being in the oil field, nothing much scared me after working around some of these scum the companies recruited, but now my pulse thudded against the thin flesh of my temple. My heart rammed into each rib like it wanted out, and the air constricted in my lungs. Above me, the grim clouds reflected as seething red and orange flames. The gunshots became audible in spite of my rolled-up window, and I caught the rattle of the Kalashnikov rifle along with the deep boom of a real-life M2 machine gun. Take the next left and then proceed straight for two miles. Yanking hard on the steering wheel, I rounded the bend and my jaw dropped. The gravel stretched on a long back-and-forth swerping path that was about as straight as you could get for most rural southeastern Ohio backroads. On one side, tall wire mesh fencing lined the quiet ditches and grassy meadows, with a sign to my left not ten yards away marked New Wilderness Wildlife Reserve. On the other side, a large open section of grassland stretched out into the distance pockmarked by little tractor paths and clusters of short trees. A few ponds interspersed in between. I could see where in the daylight it would have been beautiful, full of multicolored wildflowers and flocks of butterflies. But it wasn't beautiful now. Fire chewed through the tall grass and slow-moving walls of hungry orange and red, sending sparks skyward and bathed the entire area in shifting shadows. Heavy gray clouds clotted the night sky, and I smelled burning rubber on the wind. Bright yellow muzzle flashes cut through the dark in the midst of the field, and a row of cabins burned on the other side of the plain, billowing black smoke rising like a pall of doom. Dug in across the field with their backs to the road, a thin line of people fought with desperate brutality. I saw Armalites and Kalishnikovs intermixed with bolt-action hunting rifles and shotguns, along with flaming bottles of gasoline and pipe bombs covered in taped-on nails. Explosions went off every few seconds, the improvised grenades tossed in waves, and one man shouldered what looked to be a rocket launcher made from a fire extinguisher with fins welded onto it. The entire scene looked like the 4th of July on steroids, but the feral desperation of the fight told me that this was no rifle range. These people were fighting for their lives, and I felt like I had stumbled into something awful, a horrible nightmare that wasn't meant for the outside world to see. And then, as I gripped my steering wheel in dread, through the tall grass, they came, like lions throwing themselves at a herd of trapped gazelle, hunched figures loped forward, their shadows otherworldly in the light of the flames. Long, slender, gray limbs ended in three-fingered claws at each hand, the legs shorter than the distended forearm so that they ran like gorillas, 
their muscled shoulders propelling them forward in frightening speed. They didn't have tails, their skin the texture of smooth birch bark, with the twig-like extensions poking out from their warty elbows and spines like prehistoric spikes on their backs. Each creature's head was long and narrow, like a crocodile's snout, but with a crown of more branch-like spikes around the skull and a fan, and no eyes that I could discern. This can't be real. In an instant, the screams came through the glass of my old truck cab and cold, bone-chilling shrieks echoed across the wide fields. Not the pain to frighten the squeal of an animal defending itself, but an ancient, hate-filled war cry that held no humanity in it whatsoever, repeated by dozens upon dozens of long-limbed, predatory fiends. The roar of a diesel cut through the night and I barely reacted in time to avoid T-boning a massive green combine that burst through an open gate on the left side of the road, its front blades whirring. Someone had welded sharpened angle iron all around it, and gleaming chains had been bolted to the blades at the front, tipped with shiny bits of razor blades. Black exhaust gushed from its smokestack, and a young man with blonde hair piloted it from a cabin closed by a rebar cage into the brushy field. I'll clear the right side. A man called through the radio sitting in my cup holder. Jamie, you take the left. Let's go. Wrap him up, wrap him up. Behind the combine came a big yellow backhoe, all covered in spikes and rebar, with long rubber hoses running from an oil drum, mounted on the back to a flaming nozzle affixed to its iron bucket. Right behind you. A girl's voice crackled amongst the chatter and the two machines diverged to swing around on either end of the line of fighters, their tracks and tires churning up the muddy ground like mechanical dinosaurs. Even for my speeding truck, I heard the impact of the first creatures being mown down by the combine, its blades and chains ripping into flesh and bone with a vicious fury. Opposite of it, the backhoe moved its craned arm like the neck of some giant monster and spewed bright yellow flames onto the onrushing horde of pale beans, lighting up the field for hundreds of yards around them. Dozens of mutants fell, either burned or diced to pieces, and the ground shook with the triumphant roar of the diesels. The sickly sweet stench of burned flesh filled the air. Machinery clanged and banged and the guns roared with chemical delight. Pained screams from the bizarre creatures echoed, and above the gunfire, a cheer rang out from the line of people. Bill, get out of there! The girl called Jamie cried over the radio. In an instant, the triumphant moment turned to chaos, as the creature jumped almost 20 feet into the air and landed like a cat atop the combine. The iron spikes sank into its already bleeding feet and hands, but the monstrosity seemed too enraged to mind and ripped into the rebar around the cab with abandon. Metal squealed, bent, and then sheared off as the glass of the cab had shattered. A man's screams briefly pierced the radio static, and the combine was overwhelmed, tipped onto its side by a wave of snapping monsters. Fall back. The old man's shout came through the radio even as I watched a figure that may have been him continue firing the M2 into the onrushing waves of creatures. Fall back to the ridge. Whoa! 
A white pickup truck lurched into the roadway, and I locked up my brakes to slide around it. A chestnut-haired girl around my age sat at the wheel, blood running down her forehead with a black polo shirt on. In the bed stood an old man with glasses and gray hair gripping the handles of a 50 caliber machine gun, its barrel cherry red with heat. Others streamed across the road in full retreat, all in black shirts with the New Wilderness logo on the front, and they all dragged wounded comrades away from the burning field. My truck ground to a stop on the side of a dirt embankment not five feet away, stalling from the sudden downgrade in RPMs. The people in the white truck blinked at me in shock and I stared right back, both sides seeming confused as to why the other was there. What are you doing? The old man astride the 50 shot it and waved his arm at me, as if I were some airplane attempting to land in the wrong airport. Get out of here and go. Jerked back into the present by his raspy command, I scrambled at the ignition, the stubborn motor choosing this moment to chug 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 instead of fire. Horrid reptilian chittering clicked nearby and I whimpered like a trapped puppy, terror seething through my mind. Jamming the stick into reverse, I punched in my boot to the gas pedal. The transmission whined my tires spun and a sinking feeling ran through my guts. I was high-centered, my wheels caught on either side of the bank, the dirt lodged under my truck chassis holding me in place. It didn't matter if I had four-wheel drive or not if my wheels couldn't get purchased. I was stuck. Wham! My world lurched sideways like a massive fist had slammed into the cab of my beloved pickup. Gravity inverted, the seatbelt dug into my chest and broken bits of glass sprayed across my field of vision. Everything seemed to move in slow motion, and I watched spare sockets and old candy bar wrapper and my handheld radio float through the air in front of my face. Reality snapped back like a gunshot as I crashed and the mutilated Ford had rolled down into the ditch on the opposite side of the gravel road. I looked down at the cab ceiling, my arms hanging suspended from my shoulders and registered a metallic taste in my mouth. Well, that's not good. Somewhere across the road came the dull thud of a heavy footstep, and I turned groggily to see what it was. The creature not stood yards away, tall as a horse, and its crocodilian eyeless head swiveled from side to side, tasting the air. Red blood glistened on its dagger-like yellow teeth, bared in the firelight, and a long black serpentine tongue flicked in and out rhythmically. Something about its gray, sinewy form echoed into my head. It stirred a part of me that I hadn't known existed. I had been scared before as a little kid when my mom would get crazy because of her drug habit. But I had been scared in the streets when the older boys had tried to sell me to some homeless guy. And I had been scared the day one of the men on our rig down in New Mexico came to work with an axe and killed four people. But this was different. This was something else, something deeper. A primal, existential fear. One older than engines, skyscrapers, and radios. A fear born on instinct. The fear of prey when it sees its predator. Jerking its head around, the creature seemed to lock onto me, as if it could smell the terror seeping from my pores 
and it opened its narrow jaws to reveal row after row of jagged, steak knife-sized teeth. It roared a colossal, prehistoric sound that made the skin of my arms crawl with dread. I gotta get out. I thrashed and clawed at my seatbelt buckle, my sweaty fingers slipping and sliding over the metal button. Both my lungs felt like they were too small to get enough air in. All the blood rushed to my head in a wave of panic. A shadow fell over me and I whipped my head around. Foul breath, reeking of the torn flesh of a hundred bodies, blasted my face, with the open maw of the creature right outside my window. Thick gooey strands of saliva threw little rainbow refractions in the light, and the teeth that poked out from the mottled gray gums held bits of flesh and clothing stuck between them. A broken shoelace wound around one like a stuck noodle. I could see right down the dark cavern of its throat, and it almost resembled the inside of a rotted log, bumpy and grooved, with black flesh instead of rosy pink. I watched as the teeth headed right for my exposed face, before a flurry of gunshots rang out. Letting out a howl of pain and anger, the monster staggered back and dark black spots appeared on its bark-like hide. Smaller silhouettes dashed into the firelight, their guns spitting little streams of flame while the heavy machine gun thundered on behind them. My mind still spun in horrified confusion and I hung there motionless as the creature tumbled to the ground in a twitching heap. Hurry up, grab him and let's go. One of the men in the road dumped several more rifle rounds into the head of the fallen beast, his comrades scuttling toward my truck. A muscular form crouched outside my window and a man leaned in about my age, with close-cut black hair and a bloodied lip. Hey, you still alive? So far. Blood surged in my skull, giving me a headache, and I shouted to be heard above the hammering of the big gun just outside. My belt stuck. A steel knife blade flashed in the dark and I plummeted to the cab ceiling, barely managing to break my fall with both arms outstretched. Somebody grabbed me by the collar and dragged me out into the wet grass. Get up, man. We can't stay here. I lunged to my feet and scurried with the rest of them for the white pickup truck, spent brass casings sliding under my boots like marbles. All around me, the creatures devoured anyone they caught up with, and it seems the guns never stopped firing. The night sky filled with smoke from the fires that raged across the open grass fields, and screams of torment from dying people rang in my ears. Diving over the side of the rusty truck bed, I huddled down behind the low wheel well and the vehicle lurched away up the hill, plowing through a set of reinforced gates at the top. The instant that I saw the barbed wire top swing shut behind us, I sat up and the breath stuck in my chest. A crudely built log wall surrounded a cluster of single-story buildings with a large asphalt parking lot in the center. Four towers stood at each corner of the fort, two looking like they had been used for ziplining at one time, and the other two likely built the same time as the wall, made from dented red shipping containers stood on end. From every direction, people carried green ammunition cans, dragged stretchers with wounded on them, a rush to man the ramparts of the wooden palisade with all kinds of weapons in their arms. Many were young, likely no older than their early twenties at best, their faces sheet white with fear. 
What is this place? Darren grabs some gloves and help Richard get this gun on that wall. Barking at the top of his gravelly smoker's voice, the old man waded through the sea of hot brass casings in the truck bed and leaned down to offer me a hand up. On your feet, son. No time to waste. I... what are... what's going... Phyllis, grab some ammo and top everybody off. Oblivious to my sputtered protests, the old man jumped down from the truck bed and continued pointing people to their stations. David, get on the radio and tell the mortar crews to start laying hate. Sean, find this guy a gun and check on Carter's men. The dark-haired guy who had pulled me from my Ford jumped down from the truck and gestured for me to follow him. Come on, this way. Confused and terrified, I ran after him, dodging five girls in blood-stained clothes who ran to carry a wounded man back into a long rectangular building to our left, with a sign marked, New Wilderness Visitor Center, beside the doorway. We ducked through the door, then down a narrow hallway to the left, and the man named Sean pushed open a door to what looked like a storeroom. Green ammo cans were stacked to the ceiling with black plastic crates on the other side marked medical, and a mostly empty weapons rack bolted to the back wall. Various bits of vests, holsters, and tactical gear hung from hooks beside the ammunition, and a row of black gas masks dangled next to them. Did a doomsday bunker explode in here? You know how to shoot. He tossed a woodland camel pattern bandolier at me. The pouches already filled with gray steel magazines and yanked one of the few remaining rifles from the weapons rack. Wide-eyed with shock, I blinked down at the web gear in my hands. I mean, yeah, but what's going on? Sean pushed the gleaming black rifle into my arms and held my gaze with wild, bloodshot eyes. I ain't got time to explain, all right. If you want to live, follow me and do exactly as I say. Got it? Outside, the dull roar of something like a propane cannon split the air, and Sean grabbed a few more ammunition cans before he slipped past me out of the door. Come on, the mortars are up. We've got to reinforce the left flank or the freaks will be inside the wire. Put your stuff on, man. Let's go. Running while pulling a poorly-adjusted chest rig on proved to be nearly impossible, and so I slung the morassive nylon over one shoulder gripped my rifle as we sprinted through the courtyard. We passed two circular sandbag pits manned by a crew scrawny of teenagers who feverishly dropped homemade rockets into a couple of green painted steel pipes, dirt flying with every shot. Eerie roars echoed just on the other side of the wall, returned by the fighters atop the ramparts, pouring lead into the beast without pause the crack of rifles blending into a never-ending wave. The stench of coppery blood and acrid gunpowder filled the air, along with pillars of black smoke from burning fuel bombs. Medics staggered around the yard, some of them girls who looked no older than 16, pressing white gauze to spurting wounds, and leaning over their wounded patients to shield them from dust kicked up by the mortars. It was absolute bedlam, and all I wanted to do was find something solid to crawl under. Carter. Sean charged up a set of steps and into a log pillbox built atop the leftmost corner of the wall. Ammo. Inside, a few older men with silver in their hair and beer guts beneath their weather-worn army fatigues 
snatched at the ammunition cans that Sean had offered, empty magazines covering the floor around them. Despite their bulky physiques, I got the impression from how they moved that these men had worn those uniforms before in a different time, when they had darker hair and slimmer waistlines. Looks like a VFW meeting on cocaine. One of the men, a thinner guy with a short gray ponytail and Viking-style beard, crouch-walked over to us. Where's the 50? he shouted. The incessant bam of guns enough to make my ears hurt. Randy sent it to the front gate. Sean howled back and jerked his thumb at himself and I. Where are your reinforcements? The gray-haired man pointed to his right through the firing slit of the little fighting position. Dawn's not far off. We just gotta hold him until then. Pick a spot and get to work. Sean scuttled to an open spot in the firing line and I crawled up next to him, racking the charging handle of my rifle with clammy fingertips. I flicked the safety off and peered down the dimly lit iron sights into the darkness. Dear God. There had to be close to 200 of them, surging over the burning field past the fallen combine and up the slope to the walls in fluid at deadly speed. Like ocean waves, they rolled forward dozens upon dozens, a never-ending tide of long-limbed, reptile-faced monsters with woody skin that seemed to eat bullets. Without fear, they threw themselves at the wall, oblivious to the danger, almost immune to the pain, driven by an insatiable urge to rip in terror. Their ancient battle roars enough to chill me to the bone. I blinked and caught sight of one of us crawled up the incline of its dead fellows, reptilian teeth bared, moving so fast that it was almost a blur. Placing the front sight post over its bark-like hide, I pressed the trigger over and over, the rifle bucking in my arms obediently. Gunfire from our position peppered the oncoming monster, and it fell with an agonized shriek less than 30 yards away, black blood oozing from dozens of wounds. In my hands, the smoking rifle yawned with an empty chamber and I ducked down to reach for a fresh magazine. Just before I could reload, however, something in the distance caught my eye. Pinpricks of light flickered in the far tree line, yellow sporadic flashes that looked vaguely familiar. It occurred to me that the beasts outside weren't fleeing from the gunfire, even as we mowed them down, almost as if they had nowhere else to go but right through the hail of lead. By all accounts, they should have just turned tail and ran for the woods like any other animal. So why weren't they? Squinting hard, I focused on the lights and something inside my brain had clicked. Muzzle flashes. They were concealed just inside the cover of the dark pines. As many as 60 more guns firing into the herd of crawling nightmares. But they weren't moving in to help clear the bees from the fort walls. Instead, they stayed where they were turning any stray monsters that tried to escape away and sent them lumbering toward our position. They're hurting them. They're hurting them right at us. The tree line. I slapped Sean's arm until he stopped firing and pointed to the distant gunfire. You see that? There are guys over there. Sean yanked a black handheld radio from his chest rig and clicked the talk button. Marksman, hit the trees, I repeat. Muzzle flashes in the tree line hit him hard. I pressed the trigger several times in the general direction of the flashes 
emptying mag after mag in an effort to keep both the monsters and the mysterious human instigators at bay. Others on the ramparts with scoped hunting rifles seem to be having better luck, as cries of, Got one! I hit him! echoed from every position. One by one, the flashes started to fade out, either due to retreat or the marksmen finding their target. A soft warmth tickled my left cheek, and I turned to see the sky began to lighten, the first long ray of sunshine slipping over the dark horizon. Dawn. Cheers went up from all down the line, and with the unknown attackers in the tree line surprised, some of the monstrous creatures turned from the tide of lead to make for the forest. Their flight started to root as more of the creatures followed like a flock of birds in zone. The last of them disappeared into the trees on the far side of the scorched grassland. The gunfire started to slacken off, and I slumped down with my back to the wall beside Sean, the two of us grinning in relief. Not bad, newbie. He leaned his steaming rifle against the wall to cool and stuck out a hand. Sean Hammond. Me then. I shook it heart still racing, and I set my own rifle on the floor, waves of heat rising from its now purple barrel. Ethan Sanderson. He pulled out a small flask and unscrewed the cap to offer it to me. Well, Sanderson, cheers. You didn't die. I'm glad to know that's a celebratory accomplishment out here. With my limbs shaking from the adrenaline wearing off, I cast back my head to gulp down some of the burning amber whiskey. What were those things? Sean climbed to his feet and gave me a hand up. Birch crawlers. They usually don't cluster into super packs that big unless they're hunting or threatened. I figure we have Sheriff Warren out to thank for that. My eyes widened as I stared out into the gutted battlefield, trying to count the bodies and failing miserably. We're now. Are we're now. I don't get it, man. Why would the cops do something like this? That's exactly what I asked the sheriff. Sean's face hardened into a grim frown. Right before you tried to blow my brains out. They've been lying to us, all of us, for years. My blood ran cold at the way he said that, but I refused to lose my cool. So what do we do now? Picking up his rifle, Sean slung it over one shoulder and scratched at his stubble beard with a yawn. Well, I would say it's about breakfast time, wouldn't you? Might as well get comfortable, Sanderson. Looks like you're going to be here for a while since Wernow and his men are still out there. Too relieved to be alive and confused by the deluge of strange events that I had witnessed, I shuffled out of the pillbox and into the early morning breeze. Groans from wounded and dying fighters rose through the air. Many of the nurses, weeping and wailing as more of the critically injured began to die from blood loss. Most of the gunfire ceased, only a few of the fighters still finishing off wounded birch crawlers with merciless hatred. In the creeping daylight, a carpet of dead monsters lay piled up against the palisade wall, some so high that I could have reached over and touched their still twitching claws. They had gotten close, too close, and I realized that my death had clambered within a few feet from me more than once this night. How these things even existed, I still didn't know. It made no sense to me, none of it. Hey, new guy. 
I looked down to see the chestnut-haired girl waving from beside a metal oil drum, a fire burning in the center of it. Soot and exhaustion lined her face, but it still bore a soft, friendly smile. You frozen up there? Over. It was over, at least for now, and that was all that mattered. I had survived my childhood. I survived the streets of Pittsburgh. If I could do that, I figured, then this strange park was no different. Just like before, I would take it one day at a time. I'd get some food, scrounge more ammo, and see if I could find some decent cell phone service. Maybe the girl by the fire would lend me her phone. It'd be a good excuse to get her number. You know, it's kind of pretty here in the daytime. Taking a deep breath of crisp morning air, I shouldered my rifle and made my way down the wooden rampart steps. The smell of wood smoke in my nose and the echoes of guns still ringing in my ears. There's nothing quite like the smell of fresh-baked bread coming out of the oven. What if I told you that you could get all of that deliciousness with none of the time and work involved? Well, you can from Wild Grain. Wild Grain is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. Wild Grain uses a slow fermentation process that's easier on your belly, lower in sugar, and rich in nutrients and antioxidants, unlike typical supermarket bread. Every item bakes in 25 minutes or less as well, which is very convenient. Wild Grain is offering delicious products such as an ancient grain sourdough loaf and fresh artisan fettuccine pasta. I received both of these items in my Wild Grain box and both were absolutely delicious. They tasted better than the regular stuff that I would buy at the store and much more fresh. My favorite had to be the ancient grain sourdough loaf. It was great for sandwiches or just good on its own with some butter and oil and I felt good after eating it, not weighed down or too full. Plus, for every new member, Wild Grain donates six meals to the Greater Boston Food Bank, so you can eat good and do good all at the same time. All you have to do is sign up at wildgrain.com creep and choose which type of box you want to receive and how often. It's easy to reschedule, skip, or cancel. Plus, for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box. Plus, a free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash creep to start your subscription. Now you heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first one when you go to wildgrain.com slash creep. That's wildgrain.com slash creep or you can use promo code creep at checkout. There's an old gas station in the forests of the Pacific Northwest. If you ever see it, keep driving. Written by J.L. Goodwin, 1990. Crap. I wrenched the steering wheel over to the right, causing the tires to scream in protest. A deep horn blared loudly, almost rupturing my eardrums and the interior was momentarily illuminated by harsh white headlights. For a split second, my life flashed in front of my eyes and then I felt the bumpiness of the grassy edge of the road jostle me around. 
The 18-wheeler which had veered into my lane missed me by less than a foot. Blasting by in a blur at what had been 70 miles an hour or more. After a split second of catching my breath, I jabbed the driver's window switch down and stuck my head out into the pouring rain. Idiot! I screamed at the retreating logging truck, though I knew the driver wouldn't be able to hear me. A moment later, an outraged woman's voice tumbled from the speakers of my rented Chrysler 300. I beg your pardon. Regaining my senses and remembering that I had been in the middle of a phone call, I sat back down in my seat. Not you, Aaron, I said apologetically. If you didn't hear the commotion on my end of the line, I almost got splattered all over the front end of some moron's Peterbilt, who wandered over to my side of the road. There was a moment of silence from the speakers and then my agent let out a small snort. Well, isn't that just grand? You gotta love idiots on the roads these days. It took a softer tone. I'm glad you didn't get into an accident, Al. I don't feel like losing my best client and close friend in one go. I laughed. Helps me relax to know that you care. I admitted then, after a moment getting the tension out of my muscles, I pulled the car back onto the road and continued on. It was the winter of 2022 and I was on my way to a book signing in Seattle from where I lived in Gold Beach, Oregon. I was a writer who had just broken the New York Times bestseller list with my debut novel and as such. I was in the start of my book signing tour which would take me around the country. Obviously, as many people would quickly realize who I am if I used my real name, I have changed it along with others. Aaron, my literary agent, had suggested that I fly to Seattle from the airport in North Bend. But I'm someone who's had a major anxiety over flying ever since the September 11th attack in 2001. So instead, knowing that I hadn't purchased a new car to replace my rather shabby and broken down one yet, she had arranged me a rental, and I had begun the almost seven and a half hour drive north. I wouldn't have had to deal with those dingbats if Interstate 5 hadn't jammed up with that accident, I muttered. Well, you were the one who wanted to drive, Al. Aaron's chiding voice came through the speakers. Do you have any idea where you are? I glanced at the GPS map for what had to have been the hundredth time. The screen almost seemed to glitch, jumping as the antenna on the top of my car attempted to communicate with an orbiting satellite above. Piece of crap. No, this stupid navigation system is apparently on the fritz. I snorted. So much for Enterprise being a good car rental company. I looked back just in time to see a sign with the gas symbol flash past. Thank God for small favors, I thought. Hey, there's a gas station coming up soon. I'm a bit low anyway, so I'll stop there, get to reactions, and then... I'll call you when I'm on my way, okay? There was a sigh on the speakers. Okay, just please try not to be too long. The publishing house won't like it if you show up to your very first book signing late tomorrow, she said. I'll be as quick as I can, I said reassuringly, and then pressed the red disconnect button on the steering wheel, ending the call. I let out a sigh of relief. 
Aaron was my saving grace and had been the one to orchestrate my contract, including a very nice advance, but after a while, it became exhausting to deal with her. I stared out at the windshield at the two-lane road in front of me, relishing in the silence, save for the rain pelting the car's windshield. The windshield wipers flicking it off and the tires on the wet pavement. For a few more minutes, all I saw was nothing but endless trees pushing in close to the road, almost seeming as if they were jostling to see who drove up and down past them. Then almost as if my thoughts had summoned it, I saw the bright lights appear ahead on the right like a lighthouse beacon. It was clearly one which had been here a very long time. The overall appearance gave the impression that it had been around since at least the 1950s, if not earlier. I grunted with surprise as I saw the light-up station logo swinging around in a lazy circle on its pole. The faded green outline of a brontosaurus and similarly weathered red letters spelling out Sinclair were once I thought that I would never see in person, seeing as how the company had gone defunct back in March. Guess nobody told the owner of this one that. I pulled into the station, my tires driving over a small black wire which had caused a classic bell to ding loudly twice, somewhere out of sight. Pulling up next to the green pump, I shut the engine off and relaxed back into the comfortable leather listening to the tick of the engine cooling down. As I closed my eyes, I could only hear the loud buzz of the fluorescent lights overhead and the rain pelting the metal awning over the palms. I opened my eyes as I heard the rain peter out and I looked around, glancing at the analog clock on the dash illuminated by the overhead lights. 7.30 p.m. Ten minutes had passed. I sighed. Come on, man, I muttered and then quickly tapped the horn. The blaring sound of it almost seemed to shatter the stillness like a baseball through a plate glass window. Still nobody. Dang it, I whispered, and then I unbuckled my seatbelt and I pulled on the handle, using my foot to kick open the door. A bitingly cold wind smashed into my face as I stepped out onto the cracked concrete causing me to flip up the collar of my coat in response. I glanced around, only hearing the sounds of the wind whipping through the trees, crickets chirping, and what had to be the hoots of an owl somewhere off in the forest beyond. The garage bays were open, and in the faded yellow light of what had to be an old incandescent bulb, I could see what looked like a 50s Cadillac and a 70s International Scout up on the lifts but no mechanic in sight. And leaning back into the car, I leaned on the horn longer this time. Again, the sound reverberated off the trees and station. For some reason, I shivered at the noise. It almost feels sacrilegious to disturb the silence out here. I shook my head. Where the heck had that thought come from? I shook it away and waited another minute or so. There was still no sign of life. Maybe the station is actually closed. The thought was worrying. I hadn't seen another sign of civilization, aside from that idiot logging truck in two and a half hours. I didn't know how far it was until the next town or gas station, and as good as the Chrysler had been on gas, I didn't want to try driving further on only a quarter tank. 
I decided to find out for myself, slamming the driver's door closed with a loud thunk. Stepping around the front of the car, I walked across to the open bays, the sound of my footfalls echoing back at me. I glanced around, noticing the spilled oil on the ground and the mismatched tools, bottles, and hoses heaved unceremoniously on the bench in the back. But still, I saw no one. Great, I thought, looking up to see the bright moon begin to appear from behind the clouds. I had begun to turn and stride towards what had to be an office or a convenience store when the figure burst out of the door, nearly causing me to jump out of my skin. Gah! I involuntarily let out, receiving a good-natured laugh in return. I'm sorry, sir, I didn't mean to startle you, let alone make you wait so long. I caught my breath, and then let out a strained chuckle and looked up at the man. He appeared to be in his late 40s or early 50s, dressed in a green Sinclair jumpsuit adorned with the same green dinosaur in the front patch. The patch on the other side proclaimed the man's name to be Harold. The remaining hair on his head was slicked back, and he flashed me a smile with surprisingly bright white teeth. I held up my hand, giving it a little wobble and gave a laugh of relief. Don't worry about it, man. For a second, I thought this place was permanently closed or something. I said, the steadiness returning to my voice. No, sir, just the fact it's only little old me at work in the night shifts. He declared, jokingly wiping his brow. I snorted and smiled. The man clearly had a decent sense of humor. I'm guessing you need gas. He asked, changing the subject to business and gesturing to my car. I nodded. Yes, please, if you could fill her up with regular. He nodded and then began towards it as I jogged back around, opening the driver's door and pressing the button to pop the gas cap. Harold let out a low whistle as he pulled the pump from its cradle. Very nice car, sir, he exclaimed, looking it over. It looks expensive. I shrugged my shoulders. It is a nice car, a Chrysler 300S, but unfortunately it's not mine. He looked up at me and cocked an eyebrow as he slid the nozzle in and pulled on the handle. It's a rental, I added quickly, realizing it sounded like I had jacked it or something. He seemed to relax. Oh, yeah, that makes sense, he said jovially. It's nicer and newer than anything we normally see out here usually. I jerked my thumb at the open bays. I would say you have people with good taste around here, seeing as how that's a 55 coupe de ville back there, I said. He laughed, nodding approvingly. I see you know your cars, he said with an impressed tone, glancing at the readout on the pump. I do love them, I replied. He looked back up at me. So, are you some kind of auto collector, a race car driver then? He asked, I shook my head. No, afraid not, I'm a writer. He jerked his head up, his green eyes seeming to twinkle in the fluorescent lights. A writer, well, blow me down, I never thought I would get a god-honest writer in my station. He exclaimed, smiling. I nodded, feeling a slight sense of uncomfortableness wash over me. I still hadn't gotten used to the reaction people had when they learned of my profession. He pressed forward. What kind of books do you write? He asked excitedly. 
I read in the horror genre, honestly, I admitted, causing him to smile wildly at the news. Hey, horror is my favorite style of books to read, he said. I love everything from the old classics to Stephen King. He looked at me quizzically. How many have you written so far? I held up a single finger. Just one published. I'm actually on the way to a publicity signing right now. He nodded approvingly, and then looked back at the pump before speaking again. So, have you ever seen anything truly scary? I raised an eyebrow at his question. That came completely out of left field. What do you mean by that? I asked in return. He still watched the pumps but replied. So many horror writers that I've heard talk about how they've had their own frightening experience, whether it's a plain old scare or even a supernatural experience. It's what helps them write truly horrifying tales. Now he looked back at me. His face held a smile which caused me to inwardly shudder a little bit. It almost seemed far too wide for a moment. Then blinking, I realized it was just a regular grin, if not just a bit of an odd one. The lights must have caused you to see things. He finished. So, I was just asking if you've ever had a scary experience which got you into writing horror. For a moment, there was a silence between us as I pondered his question, only broken by an owl's screech somewhere in the gathering darkness. Then I shrugged. Honestly, I, I hate to disappoint you, but no, I admitted. He gave me a slightly surprised expression. Really? I nodded, deciding to be honest with him. Really? And to be completely truthful with you, Harold, as much as I love horror, both writing it and reading and watching it, I've stopped being scared of it a while ago. The surprised expression seemed to grow on his face. Really, he repeated and then looked down at the pump again. That's a shame, he said, his voice almost holding a trace of sadness in it. I nodded, having to agree with him. It is, I used to love getting scared by a good horror film or a book. But as I got older, it just seemed to, you know, drift away. Now I just write what I know others are afraid of. Like I did with my first book here, but honestly, I write... I don't feel that fear in me at all. I hated admitting it, even when I had given my first online interview with a magazine about my novel. I had lied about it, saying that my own work could scare the heck out of me. But in a way, it felt good to finally admit the truth to someone, even just a stranger that I would likely never see again. I looked up to find him, giving me a rather intense and honestly extremely creepy stare. His green eyes almost seemed to glow in the lights and his smile had completely disappeared. I took a step back at the abrupt change in his demeanor but just as quickly it too was wiped away, replaced by the smile that I had known since he appeared. Well, I'm sure if you search hard enough, you'll find that feeling again, he said, his voice filled with what sounded like genuine empathy. I nodded, looking out at the woods. I hope... I truthfully admitted, and then heard the sound of the pump finally clicking off. Ah, all done, Harold said happily, pulling the pump out of the car and replacing it back in its cradle. He looked at the readout. That'll be 2317. I started slightly. Under 24 bucks for three quarters of a tank. 
I haven't heard a gas this cheap since I was at least a teenager, but at the same time, I wasn't going to look a gift horse in the mouth. I reached into my back pocket to pull in out my wallet and from it, my credit card. Do you happen to accept credit? I asked, half afraid that he would tell me he didn't. But he plucked the card happily out of my hand. Of course we do, Mr. He looked down the name on my card. Mr. Damascus. The credit card reader, however, is back inside the main building. He gestured back towards the door that he had exited from. Would you mind if I took it back there and ran it? I shook my head. No, by all means, go right ahead, I said. And he turned away and strode back across towards the building. I'll be right back out with your receipt, quicker than you can say. Bob's your uncle, he called. I let out another laugh at the phrase that I hadn't heard in years when I noticed something. I hadn't seen the man's back since he had appeared and this was my first time. The back of his jumpsuit was the same stained green as the front, with a red oil rag peeking out of the back pocket. But my eyes were drawn to one thing. What looked like a large tear in it, just below the large logo patch adorning the back, almost as if he had been slashed. I could see an equally stained white shirt underneath it. Uh, hey, I called out to him. He stopped and turned back to me, still smiling. Yes, he asked. I pointed to my own back. Your, uh, your jumpsuit has a huge tear in the back of it. Just wanted to tell you in case you didn't know. For a moment, the same funny look came over his face and then he waved his hand dismissively. Oh, I know. I haven't had a chance to mend it yet. He said and then holding up a finger pulled open the door, causing a bell hung from the inside handle to jing, and he stepped inside. I was left alone again with only the buzzing sound of the lights almost causing my ears to ring in the sudden silence. Not wanting to seem rude by waiting back in the car, I instead walked to the front and leaned against the hood, staring out into the night. My eyes absentmindedly drifted off into the gloom as I waited for Harold to return. That's when my eyes finally glanced over at the large sign directly ahead of me. It was the one which advertised the price for gas by the gallon. And as I had pulled in from the other way, not to mention getting too caught up talking, I hadn't even looked at it. You could easily tell that it had fallen into a bit of disrepair as the light inside which allowed you to see the prices at night flickered on and off, precariously seeming as though it would burn out at any second. You could even hear it flickering loudly in the silence. That wasn't what drew my eye though. No, what drew my eye was the prices displayed on the flickering sign. There's absolutely no freaking way, I whispered to myself. I scanned down but kept looking at the top two figures. 88 cents a gallon for regular. I felt a small wave of confusion fall over me. No matter how out in the middle of nowhere the station was, there was no way that it would charge that little for gas. Not to mention, it showed prices for both unleaded and leaded gasoline, something that had been banned since at least the mid-90s. As my mind attempted to process this, something else fully sunk in. The entire forest around the station had fallen silent. And I'm not talking a normal silence either. The crickets, the owl, the rustling of what I thought were deer or elk in the trees had vanished. 
even the wind did seem to stop. It was an almost unearthly stillness, as if the entire forest were holding its breath. It was beyond unnerving and eerie to say the least, and it caused a shiver to shoot up my spine. The only sound that I could hear was the almost maddeningly loud buzz of the overhead lights, which seemed to drone like that of a growling creature. I realized every muscle in my body had tensed up though I couldn't understand why. Sure, the silence is eerie, but it's nothing to be afraid of, I thought. As much as I repeated that thought to myself, I couldn't help but feel increasingly on edge in the stillness. Okay, screw this. I said finally the sound of even my own echoing voice sounding just off to me, pushing myself off my hood and beginning for the door that Harold had gone through. As I walked, I looked at the watch on my wrist, seeing another 15 minutes had passed since he had left. Where is he? Letting out a sigh, both of frustration and to try and relieve some of the odd sensation forming in my gut, I finally reached the door and reached out, gripping the handle. It felt almost shockingly cold in my hand and I quickly twisted it, opening the door and causing the bell to jingle, sounding too loud in the quiet. I stepped inside and allowed it to swing shut behind me, the bell giving another jingle, this time muted in the building's interior. I looked around, aside from an old Coca-Cola machine in one corner of the room. There were no food or drinks in here. Instead, the two or three aisles taking up most of the space were filled with what looked like older-style cans of motor oil and other assorted automotive bits and bobs, all adorned with the dinosaur logo. I drew in a breath and then I coughed a little. It felt more than a little musty in here, as if it hadn't been aired out in a long time. Looking directly ahead, I saw the counter that Harold must usually be stationed at. An older-style cash register sat atop it, and behind it lay an open door marked employees only. Beyond was a long-tiled hallway which stretched out for a while before disappearing around a corner. I stared at the cash register. I haven't seen one of these old jobs since I was a kid in the 90s. I thought a few nostalgic emotions breaking through my other emotions and tugging at my heartstrings, but it just as quickly shooed away by the uneasy feeling that was settling over me like a cloud of dust. This whole thing, this whole place just seemed wrong. I couldn't tell why, but it was making my arms and legs feel as though insects were inching along under my skin. After a moment's hesitation, I opened my mouth. Uh, hey, Harold, I called, my voice seeming muted and just like the bell had. I waited. No answer. Hey, Harold, are you back there? I called again. Still nothing. The feeling increased in the on edge as the fluorescent lights in here sounded like they were also buzzing too loud. I craned my neck to look down the corridor. Just barely at the corner, I saw the bright blue sign indicating the restroom. I made my decision, calling out again. Look, if you can hear me, Harold, I'm coming over to the counter to use the restroom, okay? I can't hold it until I get to the next town. That was a lie. I hadn't eaten or drank anything in the last two hours to make me have to go. But just in case he came around the corner, 
I didn't want to get into trouble as odd as I felt. I still didn't want to piss the man off. Taking a deep breath, I hopped the counter and stepped into the corridor. Unlike the main room, this was lit by three or four incandescent light bulbs dangling down from the ceiling. It gave the hall a slightly dimmer look than behind me, and I hesitated for a moment before starting down it, taking care not to have my footsteps echo too much. The hall seemed to go on forever, but eventually, I reached the corner. Wanting to keep up appearances, I turned the knob for the bathroom and opened it. After looking in for a split second, I shut it quickly, suppressing a cough and a gag. It had looked disgusting as though it hadn't been cleaned in years, if not decades. Turning back, I noticed a brighter light down at the end of the next stretch of hallway. I debated for a moment and then I began down it. All I wanted was to be out of here. I passed another open door, glancing through it. I saw the two garage bays and the view outside. The blast of cold, fresh air relieved me somewhat and I continued on. As I reached the doorway, I looked around, seeing that it was an office. Two desks stood inside, each with nameplates on the edge of them. I spied Harold's name on the far one. I also saw my credit card sitting in the middle of the table. The bright blue stood out amongst the dark wood and the white papers. Letting out a relieved sigh, I crossed to it quickly and picked it up. I decided that I would leave a 20 and 10 in cash on the desk instead and just get the heck out of here. I didn't know where the man had gone to and every fiber of my being was telling me to leave. As I reached for my wallet, my eyes caught a plaque on the wall behind the desk. The faux gold glinting in the low light. I stared at it. The photograph was clearly Harold's, looking almost the same as I had seen him, just a lot cleaner. Below that was a declaration etched into the fake gold. Employee of the Month, Harold Janikowski. I couldn't help but smile a little at how hard he must have worked for it. Less than a second later though, the smile dropped from my face as I read the inscription underneath it. August 1976. I shook my head, hoping that I was just seeing things in the low light hoping that it would change to 2006, or heck, even 1996. But no, it remained the same. What the... I breathed out, feeling another shiver go down my spine. There was absolutely no way that, if he had looked to be in his 40s or 50s in the mid-70s, that he would still look the same 46 years later. He would at least be in his 80s or 90s now, and would very much not still be working here. What is going on? I whispered again, feeling like tendrils of dread were reaching out of the gloom and jamming themselves in me. I turned to book it out of the room and out of the station entirely. But I froze as I saw Harold. He sat in an old-style black swivel chair, his back to me in the next room. I couldn't tell what the room was, as it was lit only by a single, very dim bulb directly over him. But the room was giving me off truly creepy vibes. For the first time in years, I felt the first inklings of fear. Before I had a chance to move or say anything, he spoke. Well, Mr. Damascus, he said, his voice almost inflectionless. I began to speak. Look, I'm sorry that I barged back in here, it's just... I was cut off as he continued, 
Well, Mr. Damascus, how do you feel? My shoulders thumped as I felt a wave of confusion envelop me. Excuse me? I managed out. How do you feel? He repeated and then continued, his voice finally seeming to gain some cadence to it. Do you feel afraid? Do you feel fear? He let out a low chuckle, one that almost seemed different from the happy one that I had heard outside. I didn't know how to respond. Finally, he spoke again. It's okay, you don't have to tell me. I know, I can feel it. He let out another chuckle and I felt multiple shivers shoot up my spine. And frankly, Mr. Damascus, I'm happy about that. He said, standing up but still keeping his back to me. Because you all taste so much better when you're afraid. This time, I did manage to say something. The heck? It wasn't the most eloquent response, but apparently Harold had found it funny, as he let out another low, creepy chuckle. He finally turned towards me and I jumped backwards, slamming into his desk and causing his nameplate to fall to the ground. The man still smiled at me, his smile now holding a very definitive wideness to it, holding an almost pants-wetting wickedness in it. But he didn't see him alive. His previously sparkling green eyes now seemed glassy and unseen. To put it bluntly, he almost more resembled a ventriloquist dummy, a puppet than anything. He almost seemed to lean towards me, and finally he spoke. I'll make it sporting though. You have 20 seconds to run, he said. Swallowing hard, I looked around and saw a tire iron on his desk. I snatched it up, ready to club the man over the head if he made a move towards me. That's when he simply dropped forward onto his face. He fell halfway forward into the room and didn't move. I looked down at him and gasped as I realized what I was seeing. The man looked like nothing more than a deflated beach ball, as though all the organs and blood in him had been sucked out. I saw the tear in the back of his jumpsuit again, this time much more pronounced. Behind it is, a dirty white shirt had been torn as well, and it revealed a hole in his actual back. I could see the white of his spine clearly visible in the yellow light. As I stared down at him, I heard a voice. This one, though, was not Harold's. It seemed to come from everywhere and nowhere at once, much lower than I had ever heard a human voice speak, and it alone almost made me piss myself because it held a truly evil, sadistic tone to it. 20, 19, 18, 17. I looked up and into the darkened room Harold had fallen out of, and finally for the first time in years, I screamed. Hovering just in the darkness beyond the edge of the dim light's gaze were two enormous, glowing green eyes. They were larger than a human's eyes ever could be, and in a very inhuman shape, looking like crescent moons. They held the most evil, sadistic glee that I had ever seen in my life. At my scream, the voice stopped counting down and it laughed. A great booming laugh that sounded like nails on a chalkboard. And then it began counting down again, the malicious excitement in it audible. 16, 15, 14... I didn't wait any longer. I didn't want to see what those eyes belonged to. I turned and sprinted out of the office, running down the corridor, 
my footfalls and panicked breathing echoing back to me like a gunshot. The corridor seemed to go on forever, and I couldn't understand why it was taking so long to reach the corner. Finally, though, I reached it and froze. I was back at the entrance to the office. What the... Behind me, I heard the voice reach 10 and I began sprinting again down the hallway. It seemed to take even longer to reach the corner and this time, I reached out to grab the corner edge, only to grab the wooded edge of the office door. My eyes widened and I felt tears begin to fall from my eyes as I ran again. The voice continued as I dashed down the ever-increasing corridor. Seven, six, five... I let out a strangled sob as I grabbed for the tiled corner, pushing off the edge of the corridor to snatch at it. Instead, I smashed into the wall next to the office door. I fell in a heap, trying to force myself up when I heard it finished. Three, two, one. Ready or not, Mr. Damascus, here I come. As it finished uttering the last word, the voice dropped even lower as if I were hearing the voice of the devil himself speak to me. I realized if I looked behind me now that I would see it. Standing in the middle of the office over its human puppet, I refused to look back. I knew that it wanted me to. Tears flowed freely down my cheeks, mixing with the blood from my head where I had slammed into the wall. Every horror movie, death in movies and books flashed through my mind and I knew all of them weren't even remotely as horrible as what that thing had planned for me. That's when I thought just a tiny glimmer of hope flashed through my mind, something that I had seen as I had walked down the hall to the office. I felt adrenaline coursing through me. I might die trying to do this, but I have to try, I thought. I heard the floor behind me rattle and I felt hot, stinking breath fall across the back of my neck. For a microsecond, I felt paralyzed with fear, and then I let out a strangled cry exploding into motion. I heard a bellow of frustration behind me, followed by a laugh. It knew once I had reached the end of the corridor, it would use whatever power it had to bring me right back next to it. It had power over this corridor, but it doesn't realize that it left a weak spot open. The thought still echoing in my mind, I ran. Unable to keep myself from screaming this time as I dashed down the corridor. It seemed even longer than before, but as I reached the halfway point, I saw what I had been hoping to spy. The door into the garage stood open, almost hidden out of sight beyond a shelf of oil. I let out another cry, this one of determination. Behind me, I heard the creature stop laughing. Now it let out a bellowing cry of rage realizing what I intended to do. I felt it begin to thunder up the corridor after me to snatch me up, the feeling of something sharp sliced across my back. And then I was leaping for the doorway and through it. I landed in a puddle of still sticky oil underneath the Cadillac. What I saw now was rusting away with decades of disrepair. Not wasting a second, I jumped to my feet and ran for the open bay doors. Behind me, I heard a louder bellow, but I didn't look back. I burst out from inside the doors into the night, now laden with the sounds of the forest again. I dashed for my car, almost flying over the hood and ripped open the driver's door. 
Crashing into the seat, I stabbed at the start button. For a moment terrified that like the typical horror cliche, it wouldn't start. But to my surprise and gratitude, it did. The roar of the V6 thundering out. As I grabbed the knob to jam into drive, I risked one glance up, and I couldn't help but scream out again. The entire gas station had gone dark. The inside, the overhead lights, everything. I could see the outline of the building, but that was it. And the eyes. The eyes glowed at me from inside the base with absolute rage and hatred. Still screaming and staring at them, I slammed my foot down under the accelerator. The tires screamed and the car shot forward like a rocket, tearing out from under the awning and out onto the road. I refused to look in the rearview mirror. I knew that I would see those eyes one final time in them and I didn't want to. I just kept my eyes on the road in front of me. As far as my headlights reached, my knuckles white as I gripped the wheel and roared away from that place behind me. I just about never let up my foot from that gas pedal, taking the corners far too fast. Not until the warm lights of the next town finally came into view, one that I can't recall the name of. I felt myself beginning to cry, this time tears of happiness and relief. I drove straight through to the police station. I knew that I could never tell them what had actually happened to me. They would think that I was utterly insane or on something. But I could tell them that I had been attacked by a crazed lunatic at an old gas station. And that's exactly what I did. I burst in, begging to speak to someone. The officers at the desk calmed me down and took my statement, taking it all very seriously when I showed them my back, which, as it turned out, had three deep slashes in it. But when I told them where it happened, confused looks came over both their faces. As a paramedic rushed in from outside to check my wounds, one of the officers walked into the back, returning with the sergeant on duty, an older gentleman in the 60s. Please tell me again what happened to you, he had asked gently. I did, and when I finished, he shook his head. Son, it couldn't have possibly have happened at the Sinclair station 10 or 12 miles back, he said softly. I stammered. Why not? I demanded, struggling for my words. Because, he began, it closed in 1979 after a huge fire had gutted it, killing everybody inside. It's been almost a half a year since that incident now. I never made my book signing, which earned me a furious phone call from Erin. Her fury disappeared when she heard that I had been attacked. I told her that it had been from someone that I had pulled over attempting to help on the side of the road. I didn't want to repeat the same conversation that I had had with the police. They said they would try and find whoever had attacked me, but I know they never will. Not after they showed me a newspaper article, yellowed with age, showing the burned-out hulk of the gas station that I had been to, along with a very familiar photograph of a smiling man next to it. I still am a horror writer. The horror that I saw that night didn't stop me from writing. My second novel is due out this year. But now whenever I sit down on my computer and begin to write a truly scary scene, I feel the chills of fear from my own creation jolt up my spine. Because I know true horrors lie in this world. And I hope I never come across them again. 
I'm posting this here not only to tell the truth finally about what I experienced, but also as a warning to anyone who will listen. If you're ever in the Pacific Northwest on a lonely two-lane road in the middle of nowhere, and you happen to come across an old-looking gas station lit up with a green Brontosaurus logo spinning in the night, just keep your foot hard down and keep going, because you may not be as lucky as I was. Who wants better sex? And who wants to start having better sex immediately? Adam and Eve is offering 50% off just about any item, plus free shipping which includes rush processing. And more than that, Adam and Eve want to make your life easy. They offer discreet shipping as your privacy is their number one concern. Whether you're trying to spice it up in the bedroom with your partner, or make some time just to relax by yourself, Adam and Eve is your go-to. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item, and make sure to enter offer code MRCREEPS at checkout. This is an exclusive offer specific to this podcast, so be sure to use the code MRCREEPS to get your 50% discount off any item, plus 100% free shipping, and get it fast with rush processing. Again, that's code MRCREEPS at checkout. I worked as a security guard on the night shift. What I saw changed things forever. Written by Doomed Geek. I was scraping a living working as a security guard. I was stationed in shopping malls where my days were spent asking teenagers to move on. I sat behind desks in the lobbies of office blocks staring at CCTV monitors where nothing happened for hour after hour. And I patrolled construction sites on freezing cold nights, actually wishing that somebody would try and break in and steal some of the building materials. At least then, I could get warmed up by chasing them. My job was garbage. One night, I was responding to an alarm which had gone off at a lot of a car dealership. I parked up outside. The alarm was flashing, but there was no sign of damage to the building, so I assumed it was yet another waste of time. I stood in front of the window and looked at the sleek, high-performance vehicles on display that cost more than I would earn in a lifetime of my pathetic wage. My reflection peered back at me, a sad figure dressed in a gray security guard's uniform. I sighed, turned away, and headed back to my car. I had left my work phone on the passenger seat. I had to use it to fill in an online form after every call-out before leaving the scene, and I would get my wages docked if I did not complete all the boxes correctly. I felt so futile. I unlocked the car and was reaching for the door handle when I saw movement across the road. A glimpse of something running on all fours. I slipped down an alley and away out of sight. I thought at first that it might have been a fox. There were a small number of exclusive restaurants in the surrounding blocks and their refuse would be packed with tasty morsels for scavengers. They wouldn't care that it was leftovers from hot cuisine prepared by a chef with his own show on cable TV. But my hand hovered over the door handle. What if it had been a dog? I wondered. 
astray, destined for the pile that would eventually heartbreakingly be put to sleep. I had always liked dogs a lot. I admired their loyalty and their tenacity. Though my circumstances over the years had meant that I had not owned one since I was a teenager. And though I should have got busy filling in the mind-numbing online form, I decided that I could wait. I wanted to see if it was a dog. If it was, maybe I could rescue it and give it a home. That would give my empty life some kind of purpose. And try not to think about how I was going to afford to pay for dog food and veterinarian's bills. I set off on the animal's trail. The alley that I had entered was narrow and dark. I gave my eyes a moment to adjust and then I carried on. I moved slowly, not wanting to spook the animal. I knew that if it felt threatened, it could lash out. And the last thing that I needed was a trip to the ER to get treated for a bite. But there was no sign of it, and the only sound was a drunk singing in the distance. I shook my head sadly. I would have to give up and get back to the car. There would be another job lined up for me by now, and the supervisor would be wondering where I was at. I turned, but did not take another step. A pair of eyes glowed in the darkness ahead of me. They were red and burning with rage. I could see the snout of the animal now as well and its teeth, only they were not the teeth of any kind of dog or fox. They were way too big and way too sharp. They were fangs, and they were coming my way. My guts cramped with fear. I needed to get out of there or stand and fight. I clenched my fists. The animal was close and it began to snarl and crouch. I realized with horror that it was about to go for me. Suddenly the alley was filled with the sound of screeching tires and an engine roaring like it was fit to burst. A car sped into view. It was backing in and barely fit into the cramped space. Its sides scraped along the sides of the alley with a sickening screech, and then it slammed to a halt. I heard a door open and a man stepped out of the driver's seat. He wore a battered leather coat that reached almost to his ankles. A fedora was balanced at a rackish angle on his head. He smiled and I saw a glint of a gold tooth. Well howdy, he said it to me. I'll take it from here. The animal had not moved since he had arrived in the scene. It had remained low to the ground, its teeth bared, its hackles raised. The man stood tall before it, patted a holster on his hip and said, I got six silver pieces in here. I'm only going to need one. There will be no mourning after regrets then. The only thing waiting for you will be a cold, hard grave. It was insane. He was speaking to a crazed animal as if it could understand him. The animal responded with a howl and then it leapt at him. Moving with lightning speed and agility, the man rolled out of the way and was back on his feet in a flash. He drew and a loud retort filled the alley, all while the animal was still in midair. The impact of the projectile sent it spiraling down. It hit the ground heavily and it did not move. I stood there transfixed, barely able to breathe. The man opened the trunk of his car, picked the animal up and placed it inside. 
As he closed the trunk, I could swear that I saw pale human skin appearing beneath the animal's fur. The man turned back to me. Word of advice, stranger. Stay out of dark alleys on nights like these. The full moon's real pretty, but she brings out the beast. And then he tapped the brim of his fedora in a relaxed salute and climbed back into his car. I was left standing watching open-mouthed as he drove away. I hadn't noticed that it was a full moon, but when I looked up, I saw it burning bright in the dark city night. I took a deep breath and I headed back to my car. There were missed calls on my work phone and a red-flagged email telling me to report to personnel in the morning. I didn't tell the drone in the suit who I met in the security company's headquarters at 9.30 the next day what had happened in the alley. I knew that that was pointless. There was no way that he would believe me and it turned out the damage was already done. I listened as he told me that I was fired for taking an unauthorized break. It took all my self-control not to reach over the desk, grab him and tell him exactly what I thought of his organization and his stupid face. With my head held high, I walked out onto the street. I had my dignity but nothing else. I was unemployed and close to broke. I needed to think. I decided it was too early to go to the bar and consider my options over a stiff drink. And my cramped apartment was the last place that I wanted to be when I was already feeling down. So I set off walking. I had no destination in mind. I just drifted. As I paced the streets, my mood got bleaker and bleaker. I could not see a way out of the dire situation that I was in. Finally, as dusk fell, I gave in to the temptation of a drink. There was a bar on the corner. It had no windows and there was broken glass and cigarette ends scattered across the sidewalk in front of it. It was a dive. Ideal for a loser like me that I figured and I headed in. The inside of the bar was hazy with smoke and dimly lit by a fluorescent strip that was dancing with flies. There were half a dozen patrons and nursing beers and a jukebox playing a song about looking for love. The only thing anybody was going to find in this place was regret and stale breath. I headed to the bar and ordered a double bourbon neat. The barman slid over a glass and poured out the drink. The rim of the glass had more fingerprints on it than a crime scene, telling myself that alcohol was a very effective disinfectant. I downed the bourbon in one and then turned to leave. Call it the ambience, call it the dirty looks that I was getting because my eyebrows did not meet in the middle, but this bar was not helping my mood one little bit. I was almost back at the door when it swung open and the man from the alley had strolled in. His fedora, long leather coat, and confident strut made him stand out a mile in the seedy bar. He looked at me and I saw recognition in his eyes, but he carried on right by me without a word and made his way towards a lone figure sitting at a corner table. I had paid this man no heed before. He was keeping to the shadows and even as he was approached, he had eyes only for the drink that sat in front of him. Common sense was telling me that there was about to be trouble and that I should leave, but I had not ended up one step away from the gutter by listening to my common sense. 
so I leaned against the wall and watched and waited. The man wearing the fedora had reached the table. He had his back to me, but I imagined a gold tooth glinting as he said, It's time to end this. His voice was calm and cold. He meant business. The lone figure responded by taking a long drink, then placing his glass back down slowly and deliberately. The sound of the glass clinking on the tabletop was the loudest sound in the bar by now. The jukebox was silent and everybody else in there seemed transfixed by the encounter as well. The lone figure got to his feet. He was slender and dressed all in black. In the gloom, his eyes were two points of darkness and his skin looked drained of all color. And then he smiled and I felt a cold chill run through my body. The tips of his teeth were viciously sharp points. Had he filed them down to be like that, I wondered, or was there another explanation? One that belonged far from the light of day in a dank, dark place like this. The lone figure kept smiling as he said, That's not going to happen. It's night now, so I'll be leaving here to get myself a drink that satisfies my thirst. The plasma they keep behind the bar for me here just doesn't cut it. In fact, this whole situation lacks bite. And then he snarled and his jaw snapped open. His grotesque teeth looked like a steel trap. One that was about to close around the neck of the man in the fedora. But once again, he moved at speed producing a sharp wooden stake from inside of his leather coat and striking it into the heart of the lone figure, who screamed and then crumbled into dust. The man in the fedora turned to walk away. Only his path to the door was blocked by the barman. He held a sawed off. You shouldn't have done that, he said. Vampires are my best customers. And then he let loose with both barrels. There was nothing that the man in the fedora could do. He was sent flying backwards, crashing through chairs and tables before sliding to a halt. Appalled at all of this, I threw myself at the barman and knocked him out with the right hook. And then I scrambled over to the man in the fedora. He was in a bad way, but he was still breathing. His eyes flickered open. I forced a reassuring smile out of my face and said, Don't try and move. I'll call 911. No, there will be too many questions. He gasped and tried to sit up. His face contorted with pain and he swore. And then through gritted teeth he said, Help me get out of here. I had no idea what he was talking about and still thought about calling the authorities. It was the best thing to do. But I saw that the other customers were giving us filthy looks and that the barman was coming around. I decided that getting out of there as soon as possible was the wisest option after all. I helped the man in the fedora get to his feet and took as much of his weight as I could as we struggled towards the door and out into the night. I recognized his car parked across from the bar. He gave me the keys and collapsed into the passenger seat. I was about to tell him that I was not insured to drive his vehicle when I saw the door of the bar open and the barman emerge. Getting pulled over for a traffic offense was small change compared to the volley that was about to come our way. So I dived into the car, gunned the engine, and gripped the wheel as we sped away. 
I almost hit a car at the next intersection, but I swerved it just in time. My heart was beating way too fast, and I was coated in sweat. And then the headlights of a truck filled my line of vision, and its horn blasted out a warning. It missed us by inches. I couldn't take it anymore. I pulled up at the side of the road and sat there shaking. I glanced over at the man in the fedora and was amazed to see that he was grinning. What in Hades' name is going on? I snapped. I'm a freelance operative, he replied. I'm paid by the government to eliminate monsters. I looked at him, lost for words. It sounds crazy, I know, he continued. But I assure you that I don't need a straitjacket. Just one more favor. I live a couple of blocks from here. I'm figuring it would be safer to walk the rest of the way and while my Kevlar vest soaked up most of the blast, I'm still in a world of pain. He left it hanging there. I sighed and then told him that I would help him get home but that that was it. A day that had started with me being fired had descended into chaos and my nerves were shredded. With him leaning on me, we made our way slowly through the streets until finally we reached what looked to me like a derelict warehouse. Even though it was late, a steady stream of traffic passed by. This city never slept. This is my place, he said, while unlocking the door with a big brass key. The door opened with a creak and I helped him inside. He flicked a light switch on, revealing a long open plan room that was a strange mix of a workshop and a living space. An old and very comfortable looking sofa sat in front of a TV that looked about 30 years old. There was a fridge nearby, a stove and a sink that was piled high with dishes. A toolbox stood open on the floor near to the sink, and a wide wooden workbench ran along the side of one wall. There was an unmade bed as well and an empty clothes hanger. Rumpled clothes lay scattered across the floor. I'm guessing you live here alone, I said. He shrugged and responded with, Wherever I lay my stakes, and that's my home. I thought that he was joking until I saw the row of wooden stakes lined up against the wall. The tip of each was sharpened, just like the one he had used in the bar. He tapped the nearest one and said, I like to keep plenty of replacements. I always seem to be leaving things behind. And then he made his way over to the sofa and sunk down onto it. I could see that he was still in a lot of pain, but his breathing was irregular and as I watched his eyelids close, he started to snore quietly. It was time for me to make my exit. Only I could hear the rain falling heavily against the roof of the building. It sounded filthy outside and I was beat. There was an armchair in one corner of the room. It looked ancient and the lining was split open in a bunch of places. But at that moment in time, it also looked incredibly comfortable. I dragged myself over and pretty much collapsed onto it. I don't even remember closing my eyes. The next thing I knew, I was blinking and yawning and rubbing my face. The morning sun was reaching into the room from a skylight and there was a pot of coffee brewing on the stove. There was also a fax machine whirring into life. I thought they had gone the way of the dinosaur, so I was bemused by the spectacle as a printout had appeared. 
I went over to see what was on the sheet of paper. It was a two-tone reproduction of a mugshot. Whoever it was was not going to win any beauty contests. He looked desperate and dangerous. He also appeared human. But I assumed there was more to him than met the eye. If he was of interest to a monster hunter. Below the picture there was a dollar sign followed by four figures. I whistled quietly to myself. To a man in my dire financial straits. It was a substantial sum. I was thinking how having that kind of money in my pocket would have made my life a whole lot better. When the man who I had helped the night before came into the room. He took the printout from me, studied it, and then said, it Looks like it's time for me to go back to work. His leather coat and fedora were on the floor. He started to bend over to pick them up, but he pulled up in pain. Look, I said, if I understand this right, and you're going to try and take out that desperado for that fee, then I would say that you're going to fail. I reckon at best that you've cracked a couple of ribs. What you need is a partner with a 50-50 split of the money when we succeed. He didn't look happy about my suggestion and replied, It will be dangerous in the extreme. You must realize that after seeing the last couple of vermin that I took out, unease trickled through me, but I wasn't going to be put off that easily. I really wanted the money. I pointed at the mugshot and I asked, What kind of monster is this? He grabbed a second page that had appeared from the fax machine, read it, and then told me. It says that he's a shapeshifter. He's more dangerous than the lycanthrope that I killed in the alley because he can change it well, not just during the full moon. And he could well share the cold logic of the vampire from the bar. The amount of the fee reflects this. I swallowed and tried to pretend like I was not scared as I said my offer to partner up with you still stands. He felt his ribs and then looked me in the eye and growled, Let's do this thing. He drove this time, once in every time that we hit a pothole. I had the two printouts on my lap and I was leafing through an old A to Z of the city. I was looking for the street name that was among the details provided on the second sheet of paper. You do know that it's much easier to do this online. I told him as yet another bump in the road made me lose my page. Easier but risky, he told me. Emails and messaging services are frequently hacked but no one is looking for information sent by fax. And who's to say that somebody isn't looking at the results of your internet searches the moment that you bring them up? I guess you don't trust money being wired into banks either. So how do you get paid? I said with a cynical tone. He replied without missing a beat. In cash, used notes collected from drop-off points in never the same place. Do you like being given cash in hand? I know I do. I had to smile. He had me there. I went back to the A to Z. After a couple of unnecessary detours caused by my rusty map reading, we finally turned into the right street. The apartment block that we were looking for was on our left. Finding monsters in alleys and dive bars had made sense. I also assumed monsters would hang out in graveyards, crumbling mansions, and other generally creepy and run-down locations. As I climbed out of the car and looked up, I was surprised. 
The apartment block was sleek and modern. Balconies extended below each window. The views from the upper ones must have been stunning. And back down at ground level, there was no graffiti or trash anywhere in sight. Are you sure this is the right place? I asked. He looked at me and said, The facts never lies. Then, hiding his pain behind a swagger, he strode up to the entrance and pressed a bunch of intercom buttons all at once. Somebody's bound to be expecting a delivery. He said, and sure enough, we were buzzed in straight away. We made our way through the plush lobby and waited on the elevator. The details that we had been given also told us the shapeshifter lived in the penthouse suite. It must be profitable being a monster, I said as the display showed the elevator descending. The man in the fedora kept his attention on the display as he replied. But for some it can be. They use their differences to gather fortunes and power, sometimes through diluted acolytes, sometimes through violence and cunning. For others, though, being different is a curse, pure and simple. They wallow in filth, driven by base instincts to feed and hide. Either way, it's only a matter of time before they're identified as monsters and an operative is sent to end them. The elevator arrived and the door slid open. The interior was wallpapered and there was a small ornate sofa on one side. More signs that the shapeshifter had clearly done very well for himself. That was all about to change. The elevator ride was smooth and swift and we emerged into a corridor where our boots sank into a thick white carpet. Out of the corner of my eye I noticed a security camera fixed high on the wall turned to face us. I pointed it out and whispered. Motion activated. The man in the fedora drew and obliterated the camera. Not anymore. He sat and walked up to the door leading to the penthouse. It's over. He yelled and then slammed his boot into the door. I noticed for the first time that he had steel toe caps and steel heels. The door cracked and he forced it open and stepped inside. I followed. I could feel the adrenaline pushing my fear away. The downtrodden security guard was history. I was a monster hunter's partner now. The vestibule of the penthouse was larger than any of the rooms in my apartment. There were oil paintings on the wall and light fittings that sparkled like jewels. A door opened up off it. The man in the fedora was already barging through it. I hurried after him into a living room with a floor-to-ceiling window. High-rises soared in the distance. A man sat in an antique chair in one corner of the room. I recognized him from the mugshot. He had an arrogant sneer on his face, an arrogance that spread to his voice when he said, Breaking into my home was a mistake. The last one you will ever make. And then he rose to his feet and began to change. His entire body expanded and within seconds he loomed over us. His skin cracked and dark fur began to appear. His fingers split open and claws unfurled and the sneering face that looked down on us was now that of a beast. It growled and with a dizzying speed went for the man in the fedora. He made to draw but his injuries must have slowed him because the shapeshifter reached him before he could. The shapeshifter lashed out with one of its claw-tipped paws and the man in the fedora was sent flying across the room. 
He lay there looking dazed. His leather coat and Kevlar vest were ripped and blood was seeping out. The shapeshifter raised its claws, ready to inflict a fatal blow. I had to act. I grabbed a chair and swung this at the shapeshifter. It turned and smashed the chair out of my grip. I was left standing there as the shapeshifter snarled at me. The only thing that I had achieved was to move up the victim chain. I would be diced and sliced and left as a mess on the floor. My life flashed before my eyes and I felt sick to the core as I realized what my last thought would be. I have wasted my time on this earth. But then something whipped into sight, a blur of silver. The shapeshifter looked confused then, its head toppled to the floor. The man in the fedora dragged himself into view. He was holding a silver boomerang. An excellent weapon, he drawled. Portable with an edge that will cut through most anything and very loyal. It always comes back. The head was already changing back into that of a man. A very dead man. I turned away and was violently sick. By the time that I had recovered, the man in the fedora had left the room. I ran after him and called out. Do we still have a deal? I get half of the fee. He was stepping into the elevator and did not turn around as he replied. Yeah, sure, I'm going to collect it now. I'll meet you later and hand over your share. Be at the alley where we first met at midnight. And don't be late. The door slid closed behind him. I punched the air and said, Yes. I was too wired to head home or go for a drink, so once again, I found myself pacing the streets. I was excited at the prospect of the cash coming my way, but I wanted more than a payoff. I wanted to be back on the trail of a monster. I wanted the rush of the confrontation, the elation of victory. Sure, I was green and I knew there was no way that I could strike out on my own. But the way forward was obvious. I had persuaded the man in the fedora to partner up with me once and I would do that again. I was still telling myself that as I waited for him in the alley. It was five minutes to midnight. And then midnight came and went and there was no sign of him. I told myself not to worry. He would be there soon with my money and I would seize my opportunity to change my life forever. But by 1am I was still alone. I cursed the man in the fedora. Did he think that he could rip me off? Well there was no way that I was going to let that happen. I set off for his base. It took me hours to get there on foot and I was exhausted but still furious. Until I saw that his door was hanging open. I knew that someone as security conscious as him would never have left it like that, and my anger had dissipated. My nerves tangling with dread, I slipped inside, to be met by a shocking sight. The man in the fedora was lying on the floor in a pool of blood. No, I cried out and ran forwards. I knelt next to him and tried to find a pulse, but there was nothing. I began to weep, and as I did so... Laughter drifted from the edge of the room. I spun around. A tall, pale figure dressed all in black walked into view. His eyes were pools of darkness. My mind flashed back to the lone figure in the bar. The vampire. Was this his kin? You did this. I spat the accusation out. 
The pale figure smiled. I took my revenge. I was shaken as I screamed at him. You murderer. The pale figure shook his head. No, I did not kill him. Because there are worse things than death that I can inflict. You will see. And then he walked away out into the night. My mind was racing. I needed to do something, but what? I decided that I should take care of the body first. It was an empty shell now, but I still wanted to treat it with respect. I grabbed a towel from among the things on the floor and began to clean away the blood. I stopped when I saw two wounds on the neck. They were small and deep and I knew in my heart what they were. Bite marks. I recalled the vampire's words. There are worse things than death I can inflict. And now when I looked down at the man in the fedora's chest, I could see that it was moving. This was so slight that it was no wonder I had missed it. But there was no question now. He was not dead. He was undead. I knelt there and watched as his chest rose and fell as his eyes opened. I could see the pain in them, the confusion. What happened? He asked, his voice very faint. I told him there was no point in lying, no way back, and he knew that better than me. I can't exist like this, as a monster, he said in a quiet, wary voice. And then he asked me to help him get up. I supported him as he struggled to his feet. He took off his fedora and handed it to me. It was dawn by now and the sun was starting to reach into the room through the skylight. He began to move through the shadows that remained towards the still open door. He hesitated for a moment on the threshold, perhaps remembering his own life, perhaps summoning the courage that he needed, and then he stepped outside. Through the gap, I could see the smoke rising from his exposed skin as the sunlight touched him. I closed my eyes. I couldn't bear to watch. I stayed like that for a long time. After a while, I moved over to the sofa and I collapsed onto it. I felt more alone and lost than I ever had in my whole miserable life. The world was infected by evil. How could I find my place in it now that my eyes had been opened to this? At dusk, I made a decision. There was one thing I could do. One thing that I had to do. Take revenge. The need for this burnt white hot inside me. I put the fedora on, picked up a stake, and stepped outside. The rain struck the streets as I stared out into the night. The lights of cars blurred as they passed and sirens rose and fell in their endless serenade. I took a deep breath. Excitement and fear mingled inside me. It was time to go to work. I think I'm the Antichrist. Written by Death by Kool-Aid Man. Everyone had been talking about the news. Pastor Jude had come out and said it. He said that he spoke to God and God told him that right here in our little town, the Antichrist was among us. Everybody knew everybody in my town, which meant everyone was suspicious of everyone. That was when kids started avoiding me. They stopped sitting next to me in Sunday school. 
or playing hopscotch with me after church. Even my own brother avoided me. He would only say what he normally told me. He was the favorite because mom and dad only had wanted boys. He even said that if he had a daughter, he would banish her to below. I didn't know why everybody ignored me. Well, everybody except for Micah. He was the only kid in town who didn't avoid me. One day in Sunday school, as our teacher was babbling on and on about something or the other, I was mindlessly doodling in my book as Micah sat next to me. Claudia, he whispered, nudging my elbow. Claude, cut it out. Stop drawing that creepy stuff. I ignored him until Elder Green was stopped in front of me. Claudia, he said in a warning tone. I switched the pencil to my right hand, like I was always told to do. No, no, not that. What is that you're drawing? Oh, nothing much really, Elder Green. I was only doodling. Is that so, Miss Keller? Well, let's see what this is then. He picked up my book and I gasped along with the rest of my class. Did I really draw that? As I stared at my drawing, the pointed devil horns and sharp red eyes staring back at me, I couldn't help but think one thought. I am a really good artist. Micah scooched his seat away from me a bit. Miss Keller, I'm afraid you can't join us if you draw satanic ruins like this. Elder Green said just as Pastor Jude walked into our classroom. Now what is this, little Claudia? He asked, placing his hands on my shoulders. Nothing, Pastor. This one here has been drawing satanic imagery in her book, Pastor Jude. It's really quite concerning. Elder Green interrupted. Elder, you mustn't interrupt Claudia like that. Come with me, my dear. He took my wrist and led me out of the class. We sat down in a spare room, the one with no windows and a lock on the door. None of the other doors had locks on them. Was I really bad, father? I asked. No, no, my Claudia. He placed his hand on my leg and tightened his grip when I tried to move away. But remember, demons go after those who are weak in faith, the ones who have fought the hardest battles. The demons go after those who have fought the hardest battles. Are they protecting them, Father? No, no, my Claudia. Demons do not protect. Angels protect. Demons are horrible creatures. They feed off those who cannot fight back. But how do I know who's a demon and who's an angel father? Pastor Jude brushed his fingers through my hair. Well, my Claudia, we... Just then, Micah knocked on the door. Claudia, Claudia, Claudia! He started before Pastor Jude reluctantly got up and opened the door. He was holding a small chocolate egg in his hands. Sunday school ended... They were giving out chocolate eggs and I saved you one. It got a little melty though. He reached his hand out to me, offering the melted chocolate that had been nearly liquefied in his sweaty little palm. No thanks, I said. Well, Micah said, licking the chocolate off his hands. You're ready to walk home. 
My mom said that I can walk home all by myself as long as I go with you. We can go to the playground on the way. Okay, I have to go now, Father. Goodbye. As I left to walk home with Micah, Pastor Jude grabbed my hand. Goodbye, my Claudia, he said, kissing my hand. I pulled it away and hurried to catch up with Micah. As we walked to his house, we talked. Do you really think there's an antichrist in this town? He asked. What even is an antichrist anyway? It's someone who does the opposite of what God wants. Oh, who is it then? I don't know, maybe it's me. That's why everybody's ignoring me. I don't think you're an antichrist, you're only nine. I'm a whole four months older than you, plus. I'll be ten in a week, April 3rd. Micah shrugged. Just then, we heard a dreaded sound. The sound of Stephen Shepard's old pickup truck. Stephen Shepard was the meanest teenager in town, who loved to pick on kids. Especially me and Micah. Well, 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 look who it is, he mocked, stepping out of his truck. Little Micah with his little girlfriend. Shut up, Stephen, Micah said. Stephen picked him up with one hand and threw him to the ground. He tried to get back up, but Stephen stepped on his face with his big, dirty boots. And what are you going to do about it, little girl? He asked, as Micah tried to fight him off. He kicked Micah square in the mouth, making one of his teeth fall out. And then he pushed me to the ground. He sat on top of me and pulled a pocket knife out of his jeans as I flew my arms in the air. Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! I screamed, a sudden volt of energy soaring through me. Suddenly, Stephen was flung back like a rag doll. I didn't know what happened. I was just so angry. Oh, come on, man, he said, trying to get up. I, uh, what is this? He took off a dirt-stained white tank top to reveal three big scratch marks on his back. The rumors are right, he screamed. You are the Antichrist. He ran away and I helped Micah up as he wiped blood off his face. Whoa, how did you do that? That night, as I brushed my teeth, I stared into the mirror. The rumors are right. You're the Antichrist. Could it be true? Was that why my pastor Jude always paid more attention to me? Because he was scared of me? Just then, as I looked at my reflection, I noticed a figure standing just behind me. The lights were off, so I couldn't make it out, but I knew what it was. It towered over me, staring at me through its gaunt and sunken eyes, its pale and bony hands resting on my shoulder. I looked behind me. Nothing. I looked into the mirror, and there it was, but I wasn't scared. Demons do not protect echoed through my head, but I ignored it. It inched closer towards me and reached its hand out of the mirror for me to take. I reached back, but as soon as I touched it, there was a sudden jolt of energy and it was gone. Even as I slept, I couldn't get the imagery out of my mind. I had seen the worst and I wasn't afraid. Who really knew the difference between angels and demons anyway? Where was the line between them? Pastor Jude didn't know. Elder Green didn't know. Nobody knew. But I knew one thing for sure. 
I was the Antichrist. The next morning, I woke up in the back of my parents' car. My younger brother sat next to me, but he didn't look at me. Where are we going, Mom? I asked. To church, sweetheart. Church, but it's a Monday. I know, we have something else for you in store today. As we left the car, I noticed all the other townspeople staring at us. Some pulled their children away from me. Others pointed and whispered to each other. I saw Micah racing towards us on his bike. Claudia, Claudia, what are you guys doing? I tried to turn to talk to him, but my parents pulled me away and carried me into church. The Keller family. Pastor Jude said in a calm voice as we walked into the church. I'm glad you got my message so quickly, Mr. Keller. Now, my Claudia, will you come with me? I took his hand, even though I didn't want to. He took me into the room with no windows and a lock on the door. Father, am I the Antichrist? I asked as soon as we were alone. I don't know how to answer that, my Claudia, he said. I always told you those who were weak in faith would be the first preyed upon by demons. You must have faith in the Heavenly Father, my Claudia. I'm afraid you must be in this room by yourself for some time. Solitude is when we are best connected to God. Please, no, Father. I'm afraid of this room. I, I don't want to be alone. You must be alone, my Claudia. I'm sorry. He said and he kissed me on the cheek. As he removed the door handle so that I couldn't leave, I pounded on the door. I sobbed as the lights all dimmed, leaving me in total darkness. I tried to pray to the Heavenly Father to let me out. I am the Antichrist, I thought. If I really was the Antichrist, why would he listen to my prayers? Hours must have passed by. I had no idea how long I really was in there. I had no way to tell the time. I was so afraid and lost. Why was everybody so scared of me? Why did I have to be born the Antichrist? I didn't do anything. Suddenly I heard voices outside of the room. Pastor Jude's. This child is the Antichrist. She'll be the end of our town, the country, the world even. Do we just sit back and take it? It is in God's will to do anything to protect his children. And I say this child is only going to harm you. I say we kill the child in the name of God. He said, and I heard cheers and applause. How? A voice asked. Elder Greens. She's locked in a room currently. If we burn the church down, she'll be trapped inside, and we'll be rid of the horrible sins that have been burdened upon this town. Pastor Jude said, and I heard more cheers. But what are we waiting for? Grab your torches, your pitchforks, whatever. Just be rid of the child. I wasn't sad any longer. I was filled with rage. They wanted to kill me. As the smell of smoke filled the air, I only got angrier. And then I saw it. The thing from the mirror. The demon with gaunt, pale skin and sunken eyes and bony fingers. But this time it was right in front of me. I knew what he wanted me to do. In a fit of rage, I screamed and the demon stood behind me. 
I reached my hand out and the door blew off the handles. I didn't care if it made me demonic. I was too mad. I walked through the flaming building and I wasn't hurt. But then I heard a familiar voice. Micah. I rushed to the closest window and saw him on his bike on the sidewalk across from the church. Claudia, Claudia, come here. I'll help you. He started pedaling across the street when Pastor Jude appeared in front of him. Go, boy, leave, he said. No, Micah yelled. I have to help Claudia. He tried to push past Pastor Jude, but he picked Micah up with one hand. With what looked like no effort, he threw him into the street. I tried to warn Micah from the truck that was coming his way, but it was too late. It ran him over, splattering Pastor Jude with blood. Micah! I yelled, which got Pastor Jude's attention. You, how did you get out? He said, and he started to run towards the church. I ran down the burning hallway as I heard his footsteps behind me. He chased me up the stairs of the bell chapel, the only part of the church that wasn't in flames. We finally met face to face, his once clean and pressed suit, now dirty and bloodstained. It's over now, demon child, accept your fate, he said as the flames had climbed up the stairs. He drew out a knife and approached me, when both of us snapped our heads around. There was a noise. Suddenly, I saw the demon who had been following me around. His head was bowed down to a figure beside him. I looked up and saw the same horns and eyes as in my picture, the angel of death himself. Pastor Jude looked scared. Your satanic majesty, this child, she's the antichrist. You must take her away and punish her. The devil scoffed. I am aware of who Claudia Keller is. I sent my best demon out to protect her. Protect? Demons do not protect. He laughed a booming loud laugh. You really think? Demons protect those who need protection from evil. Angels don't do anything. They just sit in the sky all day and play their harps. The demon beside him wheezed what I assumed was a laugh. But you're right about there being the Antichrist in this town. I've come to punish them. Really? Pastor Jude said. So you're going to take her away? He pointed to me. Satan grabbed him by his white collar. You really think after everything I've told you that Claudia Keller is the Antichrist? You mortals really are stupid. So Claudia isn't the Antichrist? Of course she isn't. She never was. You are, he said and snapped his fingers. The demon beside him grabbed Pastor Jude and opened what looked like a portal in the ground. They both fell through it and I heard Pastor Jude's screams all the way around. Well, Satan said, now I can go and tell God that that's taken care of. He looked to me. Now, my Claudia, I made a promise to God. Wait, you talked to him? I asked. Satan shrugged. You mortals have a funny way of spinning things. We are more co-workers than anything. Well, I promised that I would protect those who were mistreated by his children. These townspeople, they will never understand you. Things will only get worse. If you want to join me, my Claudia, you are welcome to. I have a special job for you in my kingdom. 
What do you say? He stretched his hand out for me to take and I thought about it. The people of this town thought that I was the Antichrist. They killed my best friend. They locked me in rooms with no windows and a lock on the door. But was this the right choice? If I chose to be with the demon, wouldn't that only be proving their points? But as I took Satan's mighty giant hand in mine, I knew that I had made the right choice. I was going home. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.